I'm Matt. And I'm Jenna. We are Mana. And this is Food for Thought. A podcast dedicated to encourage and inspire you as you seek to grow your relationship with Christ and live out your Catholic faith. On today's episode, I talk about your testimony and why it is so important to know and to share right now. So I have to confess something. I needed some new shoes, but because of the way things have not been open as frequently, I had to get them in a really shady way. I had to get them from a drug dealer. I know. I And it was a mistake because he must have laced them with something because I was tripping all day. Hey everyone, welcome to episode, oh man, I think it's 72, yes, I think it's 72, I should have confirmed that, but good to be with you all uh, today, Uh, let's get right into peak pit and plug, so my peak right now is that we're redoing our back patio, I mean we've been stuck at home for, you know, three months, a little more than three months, and uh, now with having a newborn and my wife recovering and her having lupus and just wanting to stay healthy, we're still not going out a ton only when it's very necessary and not really socializing. So we have this new little kind of little oasis picnic area in our back patio. And so um, it's just really, really awesome. We got a convertible picnic table that's like bench to picnic table so we can entertain out there whenever that happens in like 2028 when we're all finally allowed to do that again. Um, But anyway, that has been really great. My pit has been uh, something I was just experiencing last night. I'm recording this on Wednesday, the 24th. And last night, I don't know. I just, I had some crazy anxiety and I don't know if it was, I was feeling something that was going on in my body and it made me freak out or I started freaking out and then it affected my body. But my blood pressure was really high um, and I just couldn't calm myself down and stop worrying about like, oh my gosh, what if something happens to me? What about my family? And just, you know, I'm, I'm not one who's ever really struggled with anxiety Um, but there's been a lot of internal things going on in my heart and my spiritual life lately. And I think the devil has really used this as an opportunity to make anxiety happen. Uh, because a lot of the external things in my life I've got dialed in, I'm very organized, like efficient. I know where my priorities are, but, um, you know, this is something that just kind of hit me. So I'm still dealing with it today. After I record this, I'm going to go get checked. Um, at the hospital and just see if they can, you know, um, verify what I'm experiencing and prescribe anything. So um, pray for me. Even if you're hearing this later, God is outside of time. And so he can, he can apply your prayer retroactively. So please just pray for me and my continued ongoing health and that of my family. Uh, And then a plug, um, a good friend of mine, uh, Taylor Engel, who was a youth minister for Diocese of Orange and now is a Catholic school teacher locally. He uh, just started a podcast called the Catechism Guy podcast, and he's been doing an Instagram page and a website for a while. But um, he says, and I will echo the fact that the catechism is such a beautiful and underused resource in our church, and it's important for us to know it and know how to articulate what we believe. And so if you want a really palatable, easy way to get to know what's in there and what we believe straight from the catechism, you should go check out that podcast, The Catechism Guy. So uh, today, all of that being said, I wanted to talk a little bit about testimonies. You know, we've had a lot going on in our world, a lot of people debating back and forth about different issues, and a lot of people getting very contentious or, you know, um, trying to, you know, be very self-righteous, or I know this, or I have the facts, or I have the research, I have the education, I have the experience, whatever it may be. And it just reminded me of the fact that, you know, we need to really figure out, as Christians, 
how do we lead into moments like this? And how do we understand or seek to understand where other people are coming from? And I think that's why testimony came up so um, kind of boldly in my mind is because your testimony is a personal witness of your own experience anchored in the gospel, anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. And, you know, you can enter a room and just start spouting facts and lecturing people about why they're wrong or what they should believe. Um, but, you know, they may write you off. You may never see them again. Um, and you may not relate to anything that they experience. But um, when you give a testimony, it's personal. You're telling a personal story. Walls come down. There's vulnerability there. And you're earning the right to be heard. And so I think it's so important for us to be able to articulate how God has worked in our life, or if you're talking about a particular issue, like how you've experienced so that you have a lens when you're talking to other people, that you're not talking about a fact or a statistic or an issue, but you're talking about a person. You're talking to a person about something they're passionate about and something that has connected to them spiritually, personally, on a deep level. And we want to figure out what that story is so that we can be compassionate to the person and then seek to learn truth from them and speak truth into that place. And so um, when it comes to testimony, everyone has one. You may be listening to this thinking like, well, I've never had a moment in my life where God came and knocked me off my horse because I was killing Christians like St. Paul and radically turned my life around. So I don't have a testimony. Everyone has a testimony. Every single person. It doesn't matter if the moment was very profound <clears throat> or seemingly insignificant that you can't even identify it without some reflection. But there was, I guarantee, one or probably many definitive moments in your life when it comes to your faith, where you decided to take it seriously, or you had a profound experience in prayer, or you know you decided to just start pursuing the Lord um, a little more personally. It was no longer the faith of someone else. It was now something you took ownership of. And so when I teach people how to give a testimony, leaders and um, people who are evangelists and things like that, I give them a, a simple three or four sentence structure. So if you want like your 30 second testimony, here's three sentences, three or four sentences that you um, can complete. And so the first sentence is, I used to be. You talk about how you were before you encountered God or before this particular pivot moment in your life. And then you talk about that moment. You say, then God did this or then I experienced this. And that really is the moment you should pick first. You know, you should really figure out what is that crucial pivot moment? And then how do I talk about how it was before that? And how do I talk about how that changed me after and today? And so uh, I used to be is that first sentence. Then God is that second sentence. And the third sentence is now I am. Now I am this way. Now you don't have to stick to those beginnings, but you get the picture for what it's supposed to be like. And then usually when it comes to people who are evangelizing or sharing with strangers, maybe uh, I add a fourth sentence, which is, I tell you this because, you know, why do you want someone to know this about you? You know, do you hope that they'll seek fulfillment in the right way? And the, I tell you this because could change every single time you give it because your context changes. But if you have a testimony that's about a particular issue or about a particular, you know, um, recognizing that God is your ultimate fulfillment of every desire, uh, then your I tell you this because could be like, I tell you this because like, I know that you want to be happy and I know that you're desiring this and it's not happening. And, and I just want you to know that your ultimate fulfillment doesn't come from that, but it comes from God because that's been true in my own life. You know, so it could change. Um, the great thing about a testimony is it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about how great we are or how great our life is. And so if you've heard testimonies like that or you've given testimonies like that, where it's just like an autobiography, that's really not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a way to highlight how God has worked. And with that being said, it takes the pressure off. You know, like in a normal conversation, let's say you get in an argument about theology. 
And instead of leading with your testimony or telling someone why this matters to you, you just start getting into philosophy. Um, it can become about how smart you are and what you know, rather than about like, look at the glory of God uh, and what he's done in our lives and look inward. You know, you can ask this other person, look inward at what you desire. Like, where did that come from? Where did that desire for more, for belonging come from? And everyone shares it. Does that speak of some common source, some common belonging? Um, and so that's one of the great things about a testimony. Another great thing is that it's unrefutable. No one can profess to be a greater expert in your own personal experience than you. They may seek to explain away certain, you know, quote unquote, miraculous pieces of it. But in the end, you're telling a story and a story that means something to you. And you're sharing that with someone else. And, you know, nine times out of 10, or maybe 99 times out of 100 even, um, they're going to listen to that and receive that. And it's not going to be a debate. You know, it's going to be like, you know, maybe it might provoke more questions, you know, and it might lead you to a more personal conversation where you're sharing, you know, in-depth things. Because you could share your testimony and then you could say, have you ever had an experience like that? You know, or where do you, what do you feel about that type of experience? What do you feel about God when I say those things? Um, and you can get to a very personal, it, it goes away from an issue that we're debating and arguing about to so, someone diving deep into their own personal heart and desires their own wounds or their own hopes and really discovering like, what is it that I really believe separated from what have I been told to believe or convinced to believe because of the echo chamber of media I listen to or because of Facebook or my family upbringing or whatever. Um, all of those things should come into question um, in a personal way. And so this is your testimony is how faith does that. And then lastly, it's personal. Um, and I said this before, but like being vulnerable is so important because you need to earn the right to be heard. If you just go off spouting even solid facts that are backed up by sources, but you do it just like not caring how they're received, doing it candidly, not using pastoral language, not using, you know, a caring or compassionate approach to try and understand where the other person's coming from. Um, it's not going to be received as well. You know, you may affect some people, you know, cause truth does make an impact, but I feel like when it's anchored in vulnerability and a, a shared sense of respect because you've earned the right to be heard and understood by each other, then real work can happen. And the issue with the way we commonly debate now on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it may be, whatever your chosen platform is, Snapchat. Um, I don't know if people debate on Snapchat, but whatever it may be, um, there's not a lot of room for that personal connection. And in the midst of a global pandemic that we're coming out of um, or in the middle of, there's still not a lot of room for that personal connection. And so how do we find ways of doing that? Um, and then how do we proclaim that with truth? This is something that Jesus commands of people that he interacts with in scripture. You know, in Mark chapter five, he, he cures the demoniac. And um, this, what, this is what he tells him. Uh, I think the demoniac wants to come and follow him, but Jesus says he would not, it would not permit him, but Jesus told him instead, go home to your family and announce to them all that the Lord in his pity has done for you. Jesus does this time and time again, instead of come and follow me, come do the glorious thing, come, um, you know, be, be the one on stage, center stage, be the one who's making the great argument or baptizing or saving the people. No, he just says, go home and tell your friends and your family. Give them your testimony. Witness to what happened here. Countless times he does that. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they're arrested by the Pharisees. 
for proclaiming Jesus and the good news of Jesus Christ. And they basically say like, all right, look, you guys have to stop doing this. Like, we're not going to punish you, but we're warning you, like, you need to stop preaching this because it's blasphemy. And uh, they say uh, in Acts uh, 4, 19 through 20, Peter and John, however, said to them in reply, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to obey you rather than God, you be the judges. It is impossible for us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. Y'all, if we really know the Lord and we've really allowed him to work in our lives, it's going to be indisputable that, that is a, there's a power there that needs to be shared. That there's been miraculous things that have happened in our lives that other people need to know about. And for, I'll share one more scripture. In 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 15 through 16, this is a very common place where people talk about um, you know biblical evidence for sharing your testimony and how to do that. Uh, it says, always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Hear that? Always be ready. But it continues, but do it with gentleness and reverence, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, those who defame your good conduct in Christ may themselves be put to shame. Now, I read that, and I don't think that describes a single, including the things that I've posted, to tell you the truth. I don't think this includes a single description of anything I've seen posted in the last, like, I don't know, five months, especially things that are about issues that are, you know, worthy of debate. We should be debating them, talking about them. But the way in which it's done, I don't see gentleness and reverence, clear consciences. I don't see um, good conduct in Christ putting others to shame, but not in a condescending or self-righteous way, just in a way that stands as it is. I don't see that happening. And I think it's because we've lost our ability to witness and so all I really want to do on this episode is share with you a little bit of my story and um, see if it affects you. Uh, it won't be that three-sentence one. This is going to be a little more in-depth, but I'll try and keep it brief just so you get a sense for how God has worked in my life and maybe to begin to think about those pivotal moments in your own life where God has also worked. So I grew up in Lake Arrowhead, California, in the mountains of San Bernardino. I grew up in a uh, nominal Catholic family. We didn't start going to church Um, probably until I was about in second or third grade, I think. Um, So I got baptized when I was, I think, eight or nine years old, and um, but didn't go through the normal RCIA for some reason. Um, I don't know why that is. And so I received First Communion pretty soon after that, and then I was kind of back on track. But we didn't really start going to church or kind of doing that as a family until later. And so I get to remember some of those things, but um, the downside was I never really knew what it meant to go to church. I never really knew what Catholicism was about, what we believed. I knew there was a God and um, praise be to God. I've I've never, I don't think ever in my whole life questioned whether there was a God. I think that was kind of ingrained in me, but the way it was ingrained in me was that God was angry, that he was kind of a judge in the sky. He was always there uh, and he knew if I made a mistake and he would, uh, he would, he would call me out on it or even punish me for the mistakes that I made. That was the God that I received. I was never introduced to the person of Jesus uh, as a personal Lord and Savior. I was never introduced to the Holy Spirit. Um, You know, none of that. And I don't know how in-depth that happens normally with the average 10-year-old, but that was kind of my inheritance of of God. And maybe you related to that. You know, God was this distant, angry, judgmental, you better not do this with all his rules and commandments in the sky. And so um, instead of looking for fulfillment in that, it didn't seem very appealing. I looked for fulfillment in friends. 
And I started, um, when I got to middle school, I got a whole new group of friends. I was really kind of thrown for a loop, new school, and I uh, didn't realize that the group I was hanging out with was not the best. And so I got in a lot of trouble in middle school. I got suspended several times, almost got expelled, um, just did a lot of things that um, were very um, dangerous and um, risked, you know, permanent citations on my on my record. Um, I got threatened to be taken to juvie a couple times um, by different officers. Don't know if it was scare tactics or things like that, but needless to say, that doesn't happen to, you know, the kids that are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so um, that all met its climax in, in one moment, one night when I was doing something stupid with some friends and some cops showed up and my friends ran away. And I was left there kind of alone. And I kind of realized like, what, like, what am I doing? Like, these people don't care about me. Um, you know, why, why am I pursuing this, you know, idolization of them as if they're going to make me happy if they could care less whether I got in trouble or not, or I was in jail or not, you know? So luckily I, um, you know, it wasn't anything that ended in any serious incident. And so, um, I started really reconsidering my friendships. I spent kind of the rest of middle school pretty, pretty lonely. I had a lot of acquaintances, but no one that was really close to me. And so when I got to high school, um, and by the time I got to high school, I was just girl crazy. I thought my fulfillment instead of in friendships would be in relationships. Uh, and so, um, and that happened kind of in a, in a, um, a interesting way. You know, I, um, I, was pursuing this one girl in a, in a French class that I had, and she was going to audition for a play that day. And she invited me to come with her. And I was like, yeah, I'll do anything. You know, I'll do whatever you say. So uh, me as a little freshman in high school followed this cute girl to a, a drama audition. And the policy was, if you're there, you're gonna, you're gonna read. And, you know, I was an animated person, did impressions, put on shows for my parents when I was a kid. So I was like, I'll make a fool of myself on stage to get a date with this girl. No problem. And so I went up there, I read, don't remember what I read, what I did, and um, like a week goes by and found out I got in this play. And it was only seven people in this play, and somehow I got in this play. And um, I don't think that girl ever talked to me again. Uh, I think she was pretty mad about it. And then she moved away, so probably not because of this. But, um, so, but incidentally, I ended up in theater and made a lot of good, solid friends in there, some of which who are still my friends today. Um, so I started pursuing, I still was looking for more. So I started pursuing that fulfillment that I was looking for in relationships and in, in girls. And so I started dating this one girl and we were dating for quite a while. Um, and it was pretty good, but a little bit of tumultu tumultuous emotional relationship. And, um, we were about nine months to a year into our relationship. And we thought this was about halfway through high school. We thought we were mature enough to start being more physical. And so, um, we ended up starting to sleep together. And, um, I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship like this, especially in high school, but you'll find out like, or you'll see it in the hallways of high school. You can remember back if you're remembering, or, uh, maybe this is still true in college or as a young adult, but when that starts happening, you know, you're giving yourself to, to someone behind closed doors in a way you're not giving them yourselves to them in public. Like there's a, a kind of a secrecy to your commitment and it creates a lot of insecurity. And so couples who get very physical very fast or before they're married start to have this insecurity and jealousy. And that started happening. We started fighting a lot and um, only really having good experiences when we were or quote unquote good experiences that we thought when we were being physical. And so that became pretty much our relationship. Um, so not really a relationship at all. Um, and 
we we were pretty much at our breaking point, um, ready to break up, not really, you know, um, having a really positive experience. Um, we even had a class together where we didn't even like sit together. Like it was, it was just very strange, but, um, got a call one night that she was pregnant and, you know, I, I think I was a junior in high school at this time and, um, I had no idea what to do. You know, um, I had, I'd been going to confirmation at church, but it was probably the worst experience ever. It was just very dry, boring, not engaging, not personal. Read this pamphlet out loud on a smelly couch with a group of, you know, eight other people who don't want to be there. And, you know, I remember almost none of it. I, I'm shocked I did enough to, uh, tell them that I was prepared, but, um, I had no real relationship or stake with, in God or in religion. And so, um, I was very self-focused. I was very selfish. And so I kind of persuaded her and we decided then to terminate the pregnancy. And pretty much immediately after that happened, we were just overwhelmed with this sense of guilt and regret. And it was very difficult to see each other and to talk to each other because we were just reminded of this thing that we had done. And, um, yeah, it was just very, very terrible. And so we went our separate ways and, um, my fulfillment in other relationships, kind of that, like just tanked. I didn't really want that anymore. I, cause I had not thought about the consequences and I had this guilt, like I had killed an innocent life. Like I was carrying that with me and I started to look to the future. I started to look and say, Lord, like, what do you want of me in the future? And, um, well, I don't know if I was that religious about it, but I was just like, whatever is going to come for me, you know, in the future after high school, that will fulfill me. That will be the moment for me. It wasn't friends. It wasn't relationships. It wasn't, you know, my faith, um, the, who, who I become, you know, um, how much status or notoriety I have that will, that will fulfill me in the end. And so I was looking ahead at the future and um, ready and excited to um, graduate high school and go to Hollywood and be discovered and become an actor because I'd been through theater all four years of high school. So I didn't sign up for college. I didn't do any of that. We're having some money troubles around then. And so it was just like, this seems like the easiest thing to do. But about two weeks before my high school graduation, my best friend died. Uh, We were filming our end of the year project for an audiovisual class, uh, three of us out at the lake and swam out to an island to get one of our last shots. And um, I got to the island and turned around and one of my friends was gone. And swam back over to the dock, dove down, saw him, pulled him up, gave him CPR, but it was just too late. And that traumatic event is, I mean, first of all, one that I've relived probably every day of my life since I think about it. Um, Every time I go to the lake, every time, you know, I talk to our mutual friends every time I I think about where I am now and what brought me here. Um, And just the, the, the really terrible sight of having to see him like that. Um, and so that really affected my entire group of friends. Obviously it was a trauma and I felt really guilty. I felt really angry. And I remember a, a week or so after that happened, um, I didn't talk, I think for like two days. And, or at least only to maybe one or two people. Um, but I just, I couldn't, you know, I didn't know what to say. I just felt like my, my mouth was sealed by this weight of guilt. And about a week later, I was in my room one night by myself. Um, I think my, my family was gone and, and I just started yelling at God 
and just like letting him have it. Like why, why would you let this happen? Why would you take my friend? Why would you take AJ? Like he had everything going for him. He was brilliant at physics. He was going to go, I think to UCLA. He was a great cross country athlete. Like he had all these plans. He like built a guitar from scratch. Like he just was so skilled, such a gentleman, such an amazing guy. And he was taken. And here I am left having made all these mistakes, having taken this innocent life, having all these different things, like, why couldn't you have taken me, Lord? Like, my life isn't worth living. What am I still doing here? And for the first time in my life, in that moment of vulnerability, where I really had nothing left to lose but to listen, and nothing, you know, that I was holding on to, because everything felt like it had been taken, I felt the God, the Lord speak. When I said, what am I doing here? He said, uh, I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with you yet. Simple phrase, but I heard it so clearly and felt it so assuredly in my heart and in my mind that that was enough for me to begin searching. And so that spurred me on a journey that summer, like maybe a few weeks later, my home parish, Catholic parish, started a life team program and a band And I played guitar and they invited me to come play. And for some reason I said yes, I think to keep my friend's memory alive. AJ's funeral was at that church. Uh, We played music together. And so I started getting invited to more and more things there. But I was kind of resigned to the fact that Catholicism was was it for me. I was just like, no, like that's that's not it. So while I was serving there, other days I would go uh, to other religious denominations and I would take classes in college. I started taking classes about religion and theology, comparative theology, um, just trying to figure out like who's who's got it, like who has the answers to my questions, what makes sense. Um, and I belonged to a lot of different religions for a small period of time or started getting initiated into some or asking questions, still get mail from some that have followed me from place to place. It's kind of bizarre. But um, read all of their texts, learned um, as best I could what they taught, talked to people who practiced. And eventually I'd get to a point where I'd ask a question and the answer just didn't suffice. It was just because, oh, we've always done it that way, or just because the Bible says, or, uh, oh, you don't ask that question, or, oh, we don't know, that's a mystery. And that just wasn't enough for me. Um, And so I started asking some of those same questions um, to the people who were inviting me to more and more at the Catholic parish where I was serving and started to get really good, solid answers. Um, and that's just, it started really chipping away at this image I had of Catholicism on my heart and really showing me that it was just brilliant. And my my uh, conversion at first was completely intellectual. Like I was convinced that this place had all the answers, but because of that, I kind of went all in. And then in, um, in 2006, I uh, went to a training conference for people serving in Catholic ministry. Uh, the Life Teen Catholic Youth Ministry Conference is what it's now called. Um, but um, I went there for the first time in 2006 and for the first time experienced on the last night something called Eucharistic Adoration, which is where um, they say, like, look, like we believe that um, it is Jesus truly present in the bread and the wine. And when we consecrate him at mass, and there've been miracles to prove that where it's actually turned into flesh and blood. And Jesus is going to be here in that Eucharistic form in a monstrance for you to adore and be with and pray with. And I was like, I heard that and I was like, oh no, like I can't be face to face with Jesus. Like all the things that I've done, all the stuff I've carried, that's just too much. And so I started crying and I ran out of the room. And, um, 
a person who was traveling with us to this convention, his name's Ryan. Um, he very recently, I found out, I lost touch with him, but very recently found out he's now Father Ryan. He was ordained a couple weeks ago. But he was in seminary at the time, or th- no, he's discerning the seminary at the time. And he came out and just talked to me, and I spilled everything on him. Like, people didn't, no one really knew what I had been through. I had kept a lot of it very close to the vest. A few people did, but I just let it spill. No one who was, fr- you know, uh, from church, like, could ever know. Uh, but I told him, and I remember just, you know, ugly crying and then looking down at his feet for a long time in silence and then, you know, looked up at him finally and expected some word of comfort or like some theological thing to make me feel better. But instead, he just shared some experience with me that was just, he shared his testimony basically and showed me how Jesus had delivered him from very dark things that he had carried in his own life. And so in our conversation, he told me, you know, that I should name my child. Um, and so he asked if it was a boy or a girl. And I said, oh, I think it's a, we think we're going to have a girl. And I remember at that moment <clears throat> that the girl I had dated, um, we had always said if we were going to have a daughter, we'd name her Grace. And so I immediately thought Grace. And then he said, I, I want you to ask your daughter to pray for you every single day. And in that moment, I was kind of overcome with an opportunity to do that. And I saw her in a moment of prayer. I saw my daughter and I saw her run up to Jesus and sit on his lap. And instead of a judgmental God who was there ready to tell me I had done all these things wrong, I saw a compassionate God scoop my daughter up into his lap and let her tug on his beard as she just said, help my daddy, Jesus, help my daddy. My daddy needs you, Jesus. Help him. And let me tell you the the healing I experienced in that and the, the profound moment of conversion to know like no matter these things that I had done, the Lord would still do that for me, that he still loves me, that he's still pursuing me was an incredible realization. And so from that point forward, I started diving into ministry and I still struggled with sin, habitual sin, with bad choices, with dating, with all these things. But eventually I got my act together and and met my wife and in through ministry through that parish where I served and ended up working on staff for um, seven years. And, you know, that's I've been serving as a minister in some capacity on staff at a parish since 2007. Um, it's how I met my wife. It's where we got married. It's why I have and do pretty much everything that I do. And I tell you this because I know that we're all looking for fulfillment. I know that we're all looking for more and deeper and a sense of meaning and belonging. We're looking for truth, goodness, and beauty. We're looking for love, to be loved, and to know what it is to truly love. We all have that desire. Where does that come from? I think, and I've found in my own experience, that it comes from God, and it can only be fulfilled by Him. And so I invite you to think about, is He inviting you to do something? You're still here on this planet. That means He's not done with you yet. If he forgot about you for a millisecond, you would cease to exist. He is constantly willing you to exist. Your name is constantly on his mind, on his lips. The hairs of your head are counted, as scripture says. What do you think he wants? What do you think he has in store for you? I guarantee it's something beautiful. If you try and open up and let him, let him in. So friends, that is my story. And I want to share with you the story of one other saint, if this is something that is inspiring to you to try and figure out. 
if um, you want to figure out how God has worked in your life or allow him to invite him in um, and, and tell that story and share that story with others in a passionate way, I want to share with you a saint, uh, a saint that is more common in the Eastern Church, but her name is Saint Fotina. Um, her feast date is March 20th. Her name, uh, Fotina or Fortin, it literally means the luminous one. It's where we get the word photon. That's the same root word, uh, a light particle. Um, <clears throat> she was a martyr, a Samaritan martyr. And according to Greek tradition, she, Fotina, was the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus spoke to in John chapter 4. She, uh, you can go read about her experience in John chapter 4. I'm not going to rearticulate it. It's a very famous story. But um, tradition says, and, and from what we know from the early church fathers, she was deeply moved by that experience. Uh, and she started preaching the gospel. She was imprisoned and she was finally martyred um, in Carthage for her faith. Um, but another tradition states that she was uh, killed in Rome um, because she converted the daughter of Emperor Nero who was and, and 100 of her servants. Um, the Emperor Nero was like the most evil person, you know, in church history, in the early church history. That's where we get the number 666 from, is from his name, um, the numerological symbolism of his name. And so um, she was brought, Fotina was brought before Nero um, to answer for her faith. Um, and she suffered many, she suffered, she was tortured, and she died a martyr, a martyr uh, after being thrown down a dry well. Um, and so she supposedly died there um, with her sons, Joseph and Victor, along with other Christians, uh, including people um, such as Sebastian, Photius, Parasev, Photis, Syriaca, and Victor. Um, and they were perhaps included in the Roman martyrology of Cardinal Cesare Baronius, um, to, and that might be because of the... Um, the widely held view that she, her remains, her head is preserved in the church of St. Paul outside the walls in Rome. If you've ever been to Rome, you know, that's a pretty famous church. So anyways, um, she's remembered on the, um, the fourth Sunday of Easter, um, because the fourth scrutiny or this, I think that's when the scrutiny is, um, first scrutiny, um, and it's known as the Sunday of the Samaritan woman. It's when that gospel is read uh, in cycle A and every year at the mass where RCIA catechumenates are, um, are brought into uh, those experiences of the scrutinies. Um, and so on that day, um, on the fourth weekend of, of Lent, um, in Oaxaca, Mexico, there's a celebration of the Samaritan woman and it involves churches, schools, businesses, giving away, um, these fruit drinks to people passing by. I don't know why they do that, but it's a big celebration because she's, um, she has a deep meaning to people. And just think like one person 2000 years ago encounters Jesus. And because of that, the countless people who have come to know Jesus because of her, because she shared her testimony to where now, even though that happened you know, in Samaria, in the Middle East, in the region of what we now know as Israel or Palestine, um, people celebrate and know her name in Mexico, all because she was faithful and went and told people about what Jesus had done in her life. We have no idea what our story can do, who it can help, who it can relate to, how Jesus can be proclaimed, glorified, how we can serve him through it. But we know he's calling us to do it. And so I pray that you will. Know that we're praying for you. Pray for me as I go and get this blood pressure test and um, that everything would be well and that we discover what's going on. Um, and uh, continue to support this podcast. The highest compliment you can play is to share this with a friend. Pay us to share this with a friend. Share it on social media. 
You can support us financially on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. All that information and how to connect with us on social media and our weekly Psalm Reflections is all at our website, manafoodforthought.com, all spelled out. Um, So yeah, it was great to be with you all. We're praying for you. And until next time, we will see you in the Eucharist. God bless. (music) 